Hello and welcome to Innovation Matters. It is the podcast about sustainable innovation brought to you by Lux Research. I am your host, Anthony Schiavo. I'm joined as ever by my two co-hosts, uh, Kartik Sobramian and Mike Holman. This is the podcast that records quickly so that it can go watch cricket. Isn't that right, <laughs> Kartik? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was quite surprised that after the World Cup, you're going to have games so quickly. But then um, there's been a game every three days or something. So, uh, yeah. And, and Karthik, for the the, uh, the audience here, is wearing what I am assuming is a India cricket jersey. I am wearing an India cricket jersey, yes. And I have my name uh, uh, printed on the back. So, uh, custom oh, really? shirt. Oh, yeah. Oh, the, the, custom, the custom swag. I didn't realize that. That's... Uh... <laughs> You'll yes. be pleased to know, Kartik, that my uh, my niece and nephew, who live in live in Minnesota, both uh, both own India team cricket jerseys because they they lived in Mumbai for a few years. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Their mom was working over there. So. <laughs> Good going. Yeah. Oh boy. So, you know, before we fully pivot into doing just cricket content uh, for 2024, we figured we would we would end the year um, with an episode or two, really focused on kind of wrapping up, identifying some of the big changes, some of the big trends, some of the big uh, just sort of shifts, vibe shifts, if you will, um, for various technologies. And I think this, you know, today we, we really want to keep it focused on the technologies themselves before we get into what we think is likely to happen for 2024 or anything like that. And I've asked the group, I've asked the fellows, the boys to, uh, just think about what technologies they felt like had the biggest changes or, you know, had a breakout year or really were, were important um, just in, at, at the highest sort of level overall this year. And I think we wanted to start with nuclear, which has had a really significant year. There's been a ton of nuclear news, uh, not all of it positive. We had a lot of great conversations about nuclear on this show. I think my favorite maybe interview we did <coughs> was with uh, the Fusion Industry Association there. So, Gartek, I guess I'll kick it back over to you. How, I mean, what, if you had to sum up this year for nuclear, what would you say? What, what would you, what would you tell me? And um, you know, when are we going to get, when, when am I going to have fusion power? Right? Like that's the, that's the big question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think this year, if, if you were to use one word to sum up nuclear, that would be resurgence and a big one at that. Uh, the year started off with announcements from Korea on floating nuclear power. Um, and then all of a sudden we started seeing a lot of SMR news with new scale, getting a lot of funding. And then new scale canceling projects because they they were so scared that no one's going to subscribe to the project. Um, nuclear fusion was doing its own thing. We had uh, the second time that a net energy gain was obtained. So it was much uh, higher than the previous one. Um, and then we ended the year on a high note. Uh, I mean, the year is not yet over, but I would still say that uh, with the holidays coming in, you know, I guess this would be the most significant piece of news that... Uh, a lot of nations agreed to uh, triple nuclear energy capacity uh, uh, by 2050, if I'm not mistaken, um, for nuclear, along with renewable energy capacity by 2030. So big positive momentum for nuclear. And it was also surprising, or maybe not surprising, to see the United States specifically call out nuclear fusion at COP. 
talking about how they want to advance nuclear fusion even though our outlook on it is a bit uh meh to say the least uh but yeah uh, resurgence would be that word yeah but i think we we were the, the sort of the nuance within that though is we we were talking about this earlier you think uh the fusion you've you've actually gotten a little more pessimistic about it sounded like over the over the course of the year even as you know the the fission stuff particularly the small modular reactors um are building momentum but but what's what's got you down on fusion i mean the one thing i've been noticing with fusion is a lot of funding has been going in and and that is obviously required given given the state that fusion is in at this point but i i mean we are actually talking about harnessing millions of degrees you know celsius or kelvin whatever you want and you want materials that's able to withstand that right and that's physically impossible so you need advances in material science you need advances in digital technologies and that is going to take time even if digital is moving very quickly uh which is why i think the promise of fusion is great but you shouldn't put your entire money on it you know uh i still believe and and especially as the year has progressed i've realized that momentum is actually quite slow despite the number of announcements we see in the space and the real milestones in fusion are only going to be seen by 2025 2027 or, or between that period and i won't be surprised to see like revisions in timelines because you need materials that can you know handle a fusion condition right which is not straightforward so the magnitude of the challenges is why i'm growing pessimistic by the minute with fusion So when when we had um that conversation one one of the points <coughs> excuse me that was made by I think it was Andrew um was that you know there has been a lot of funding for other technologies and you know he he basically made an argument for why fusion should be one of the technologies that gets funded or or R&D you know resources given and to it do you think we're over estimating. Do you think we're over investing in fusion right now? Um and you know what wh- where is the what what would the appropriate level be I guess given the, you know, the you questioner said, is leading the witness here I think. <laughs> no, I I, I, gen- I genuinely <laughs> I I genuinely am not sure that we are. I I I really don't necessarily think we are. Um I mean I, I mean, think obviously there's a part of me that's like, you know, climate stalin just wants to uh build bike lanes at gunpoint and uh <laughs> <laughs> you know expropriate uh like coal plants or whatever and and turn them into solar farms but you know there is a role for a long-term innovation here and this is this is a a technology that does have some potential so i'm just curious if you think we're we're over-indexing into it right now and how big that investment really is is part of the question there as well um I don't think we are over investing in fusion as such. I think that the magnitude of the challenge is so that you need to invest in it and you need to spend a lot of man hours uh, not just money. Uh, so it is understandable that you're investing in it and 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 the, and the promise is very clear, right? Uh, but again, I mean, that should not be your only focus, you know. Sh- fusion is not going to be the silver bullet for the energy transition and we shouldn't discount the other technologies is what I would say. Uh, maybe Mike or Anthony, you disagree, and and uh, maybe Anthony specifically because I know you are a DAC hater, so maybe you become a fusion hater with this. Uh, oh, DAC to hear is what you guys DAC think. is real different from fusion, though. I feel like DAC. 
to me, Dak doesn't even make sense at a baseline. Like, <laughs> um, but you alone. don't see that with Fusion, though. I guess the thing that's if Fusion works, it, it is basically free energy, and that's pretty useful. Um, even I am not immune to that argument. Um, whereas Dak uh, doesn't have that kind of upside. You know, it it just will always be in a very energy intensive and it will always be the worst way to do carbon removal, right? And it will always be so far down our list of priorities um, that I, I, I just really don't think it's that worth investing in at any particular point. Um, but, you know, we talked about fusion. I guess I'm curious for your read on the rest of the nuclear space, the more conventional fission space. I, I I was reading an interesting argument basically recently that even small modular reactors don't make a lot of sense and that our big conventional nuclear reactors actually work really well. You know, they have 95% uptime and a really incredible safety record, right? Um, <coughs> few notable incidents aside, right? Um, so I guess I'm curious as how you see that playing out. Is small modular really the future of nuclear or does it look more like Vogel 2 as the blueprint. Yeah, I, th- I think with small modular, the one thing people should realize is that small modular is not the answer to replace large-scale nuclear. Like, it is going to be more expensive. Uh, but what you can do with small modular reactors is maybe you could call it a smaller large-scale reactor as such, and you could deploy smaller units for remote power generation or on-site power generation where you know, maybe you have, you know, a thousand households and you only need that much nuclear power. So you don't need to have a large one gigawatt reactor. Um, Those are the places where I feel SMRs can be useful. But I mean, a lot has to go in the favor for SMRs to become cheaper than large scale nuclear. Like you need to produce a hundred units a year. Uh, you, You need to have that, you know, supply chain sorted out. You need to have the higher uptimes. You need to prove that advanced reactor concepts can be licensed quicker. You can get type approval from the regulatory commissions and stuff. So it's going to be quite challenging. Um, I was having an interesting conversation with a professor from uh, the University of Illinois, and he was talking about how, you know, the NRC in the United States, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they, they really have no clue about advanced reactor concepts. Uh, so if you go in with even a new reactor concept, they would be like, okay, here are 10,000 pages that don't make any sense to me. Get me 5,000 pages more. And then you're going to have this back and forth where you're going to take a long time licensing the reactor. You're going to spend a lot of money doing that. And specifically in the United States, fuel supply is a big problem. So if you go to the DOE and you say, you know, I would like some fuel because I want to build a nuclear reactor, the DOE would say, show me a PPA, show that you have a customer who's going to purchase nuclear electricity. And then you would go to a potential customer and you say, you know, I, you know, can we sign the PPA? They're like, show me you have the fuel. Then I'll give you the PPA. So yeah. how does that work? So I'm, I'm, I am skeptical that they're going to replace large scale. As I said, long story short, but uh, yeah, uh, there could be some value for remote power generation. How about putting them on boats? Oh, uh, that's a whole other <laughs> topic, I would say. <laughs> In keeping with our podcast theme of having oh to, to talk about it every time somebody does something talk. crazy with uh, with uh, a, a, a container shipping vessel. The uh, Yeah, in China. Correct. Yeah, in China. What's what's it? Uh, Jiangnan. Jian, Jian <laughs> <laughs> I 
(laughs) 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 Unveiled the world's largest nuclear-powered shipping uh, container ship design. Correct. Uh, With a molten salt reactor, it was uh, quite exciting to see. Uh, I mean, floating nuclear is not... Is that a thorium-based reactor? Correct. Yes, it is thorium-based. I feel like thorium energy is like a real, like engineering like crank type thing like every engineering crank i know myself included is really into the concept of of thorium based reactors yeah um, thorium is more abundant as well um, especially if you're in india you would be uh, jumping at the side of thorium because i think india has the largest reserves so you basically control the market um but yes uh, i mean in terms of just floating nuclear or nuclear on boats uh it's not a a, a novel concept. We know submarines that power on nuclear power. We have uh, nuclear-powered ships uh, in Russia that's actually supplying power. Like the ship can move and you can connect it to the grid. So I see some value there, but the question would then become, can this translate to nuclear power for shipping maybe? Like actually powering a boat. And that's where I see some challenges with you know crossing international waters, concerns with pro- proliferation, is the shipping community going to agree having a nuclear vessel uh, just waltzing around? Isn't um, the challenge in particular, I mean, the Navy is very, very good. The U.S. Navy, I should say, is very, very good at nuclear power. But almost all their reactors are are single use, basically, right? Once those those reactors are decommissioned, I mean, they have like a 30 to 50 year lifetime. And then they're basically, the whole reactor is like buried deep underground, as I understand it. It's never really... It's not really a sustainable model as such. Um, yeah, exactly. That's what they do with any reactor, actually. So you just take the waste and you bury it underground so that no one sees it for the next 300, 100,000 years, whatever be the case. So, I mean, I think the thing about the nuclear ships, it does make sense, uh, more sense with thorium in particular, right? It's uh, it's non-proliferative in the sense that you it's a lot harder or maybe impossible to make weapons out of it. Um and you can do a lot longer duration with the molten salt reactors. You can theoretically do refueling, uh, continuous refueling. There was actually, I don't know if you guys know this, uh, the first molten salt reactor was developed for a nuclear-powered bomber in the 1950s. The idea was they would have a <laughs> have a nuclear bomber that they could keep in the air for, I think, like basically indefinitely um, as, as, as far as that goes. Some, some real... Some real good, you know, early Cold War, uh, I don't know, technological theorizing there. But I don't know. I, I think that that just seems so unnecessary to me. The whole nukes on ships thing. It just is like, if we're really getting there, if we're building that many nuclear reactors, if we're that good at building nuclear reactors, just put them on land, man. There's plenty of there's plenty of places to put a nuclear reactor on on land before you get to putting it on a boat. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But uh, nuclear was not the only thing that made the news, right? I guess, Mike, uh, you want to also highlight some developments uh, that caught your eye. Mike, you know, when we asked you this question, you talked about or you wanted to bring up the whole critical mineral space. And uh, we talked on the podcast about Exxon, um, you know, their their move into lithium. And um, there's some interesting stuff on the bio-based side. We talked to... uh, the, the group from Biomade and and I, I think just more more generally um, these issues with critical minerals have been something that we've been very interested in at Lux for the last year or so 
So I'm curious why you, you flagged this up and, and where where your head's at now with these critical minerals and, and metal extraction technologies. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the what's what's been driving it too is the 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 policy environment, right? I mean, we had the news uh, with China's export bans on gallium and germanium, which is um, you know relatively small stakes, but if 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 uh, though though important for for some sectors, but um, you know people looking at that and other, you know, developments in the sort of trade war uh, dynamics between uh, U.S. and China or China and and the West, uh, you know, making it, I think, a lot more real for people that we could be facing um, some real serious challenges potentially with supply of a lot of these, these, these critical minerals. Um, and at the same time, there's been a lot more concern also around the environmental impact of some of these these materials and like with the battery passport regulations, you know, what's the the sourcing of your nickel or your cobalt obviously is is and how are you ensuring, you know, kind of clean supply of that both from an environmental and, and social impact um, story of that so we've we've done some pieces uh looking at at different technologies for nickel refining and 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 extraction um there's a lot going on with copper as well um where uh there's uh you know this need for um going to be a huge need for for copper export for growth and copper production uh, for the energy transition at the same time when there's you know, more and more challenges for copper extraction. Like I was talking to a, um, a client who has been working in this area and they say, yeah, we, we've, we've been, we've been extracting, producing 2% copper ores for many years. And now we're kind of running out of, uh, of those and we're, we're producing one and a half percent. And we think in 10 years, we're going to be producing 1%. So technologies that can improve, you know, both the mining and extraction of, uh, of those kind of critical minerals are getting a lot of attention too. And then, you know, kind of finally, this is, and this is something you and Anthony and I have been working on for, for a, a bit for another, another client project is, is just sort of thinking about alternatives, right? If, if these areas come to fruit, you know, if some of these concerns about critical mineral supply um, come to fruition, right. Where the, the trade wars or, whatever factors are leading to uh, restrictions on access to some of these, these critical minerals in certain geographies, there's going to be a need to invest in new alternative technologies that can, can help to, to address that. And, you know, so something like the momentum we've also seen this year around sodium ion batteries as an alternative to lithium ion batteries is also a critical minerals story because uh, you know, um, you can, if you don't have access to lithium, then maybe you, maybe you've got to move to sodium, even if that's not a, uh, you know, even if maybe, maybe you wouldn't uh, do that on purely techno-economic grounds. Yeah. I think what's so interesting about this is the sort of intersection of so many of the themes that we've been talking about this year. You know, the technology development angle is really important for 
chemical companies and a lot of our clients because I do think it really represents an opportunity for new innovative chemistries to sort of take the spotlight, right? Um, particularly this this issue of sustainability and, you know, not just the current chemicals and approaches that are used in metals extraction, which are pretty uniformly <laughs> not good, but there's this huge opportunity as well to address things like mine wastes and mine tailings, where you have these this large body of, of very low quality natural resource that's been created, uh, which has significant metals and has a lot of stuff in it. It's just been considered a waste product for a long time because it's not economic with current technologies to access. And if you can do that, if you can find a way to cost effectively pull copper or nickel or whatever out of these, these existing tailing ponds, they're just sitting there, right? And you've unlocked this big new resource. At the same time, though, from a consumer perspective, there's a real risk here when you think about, oh, we need people to you know, transition to um, sustainable technologies or support electric vehicles or solar. You know, I don't think electric vehicles are that sustainable for the correct reasons, which is that cars aren't that sustainable. You should take a bus. But, <laughs> you know, one of the big concerns people have about EVs is... Um, is the mining and the metals and very fairly, right? You know, cobalt mining in in Africa is like really disastrous from a labor and human standpoint, for example. So And environmental, yeah. And environmental, yeah, not just that. Um, So there's a real opportunity to improve those things here. And like, I mean, again, if if Climate Stalin cannot expropriate your car and force you to ride a bike to work, then we at least need to make sure (laughs) that people are, are willing to buy in and they feel confident in the the actual sustainable offerings that we do have for them. And I think there's, there's just a really big opportunity to make that happen here. So I'm really excited, um, positive about the opportunity here and, and the use of new technologies, especially some of the biological approaches. But uh, what do you guys uh, think about sea-based mining? I know there was a lot of uh, chatter about sea-based mining this year. Yeah, I mean, if there's you know, one of the ways we talked about framing this is uh, technologies that you've you've changed your mind on, and I think that's something I have. I mean, I heard about that. It's like it's, I had always sort of assumed, um, it, and thought that that was really just kind of pie in the sky. You know, it's like in the same category as asteroid mining almost. Uh, but, um, you know, through some work that that some of uh, just kind of talking to the colleagues who've actually done some work on this um, uh, this year, I think there, there actually is a pretty significant opportunity there. Um, it's really and the technology to, to do it is a lot more viable than 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 I had thought. It's really more of a regulatory question, right? How can you allocate the mining rights and how can you if you can address the concerns about the the environmental impact on the you know these sort of deep sea ecosystems because a lot of these technologies you're you know you're you're stirring up a lot of sediment it has a big impact on on those sort of marine ecosystems that we we don't know that well and we haven't studied the impacts of those um you know of course the flip side of that is you know, is it worse than what we're, you know, already doing on the surface with conventional mining in terms of its environmental impact? Um, I don't know. It may or may not be. I think that, but that's, that's really where the uncertainties are around it. I actually think just as far as can you, can you get a, a economically meaningful 
amount of 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 metal up off the the bottom of the ocean actually i think you yeah can. yeah it's interesting you bring up the environmental uh angle here because it's i think this is a problem we're going to run into a lot next year uh and and going forward where it's like the general benefit of like not killing the planet with climate change relative to the specific benefit uh, or negative cost of disrupting whatever you know ecosystem of 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 deep sea starfish or whatever the hell is is just going to be a constant pain point for any group and i think we're really going to see some pretty well-meaning people do some real harm in terms of uh, their impact on the overall sustainable transition by, by bringing up these issues. And obviously it's, it's tough because there is a real concern, if you will. Um, Yeah. There is a real challenge there, but at the same time, like, like ocean acidification, like ocean temperature is going to have such a extraordinarily negative impact on uh, marine biodiversity that, Deep sea mm-hmm. mining, by comparison, I think is a pretty a pretty small small issue. Yeah, and I guess the the other thing on the critical minerals front I didn't mention already, but of course is a, is a big part of this story is the recycling yeah. element, you know, particularly for uh, for batteries. Um, you know, with the lithium, but but maybe more uh, more relevant the uh, you know the other uh, critical you know cobalt magnesium uh or manganese pardon me and uh um nickel and nickel uh though there's also magne i mean magnesium is another interesting area we've we've kind of gotten into this you know like companies like latrobe that's extracting um uh, magnesium from uh from fly ash and and uh you know other non-traditional approaches to 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 uh more sustainably producing magnesium is actually a kind of a whole interesting area in and of itself too, but we're getting, we're getting a little bit into a little bit into the weeds here. How, Mike, when, when you think about this, um, how do you think about the, the opportunity for tech development? Because I think this is one of those things where our clients like don't have a clear view. And even for myself, it's challenging. Is this something that's going to happen next year? Like, is this going to be something that's really near term and there's a lot of opportunity to really drive things forward, like quickly? Or is this a very something that's actually going to have a lot of false starts, a lot of missteps, a lot of long term challenges for for this type of thing? Well, I I, I definitely think there's going to be a lot of challenges. I mean, mining and, and metals production is is a pretty well, you know, one, very well established and two know, often for very good reasons, conservative industry. So you're not going to be, you know, seeing like Rio Tinto going whole hog on bio leaching or whatever anytime, anytime soon. But um, I think there are some areas where, where things are happening now. There's, there's some real opportunities and direct lithium extraction is, you know, probably the, the best example of that. Some of the big projects that like we talked about Exxon, and, and and some of these other some of the other players are are engaging in and there there is a whole sort of set of um you know it's project development opportunities there and there is a lot of need for uh some of the membranes and sorbents and 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 other kind of enabling technologies that go into those to those kinds of projects 
so I think that's, um, you know, that's a, a good opportunity around lithium. I think there's, there's some good opportunities and, and a lot of scale that's going in, particularly in, in battery recycling right now as, as well for some of those other elements. Um, but I think if you, you know, you kind of get into to something like alternative nickel processing uh, or, you know, like the bioleaching sort of stuff in, in general, there's um, that sort of stuff is definitely going to be further out. All right. Uh, the last thing that and this is this is my particular choice here, then, is um, we actually had a lot of conversations this year about uh, reusable packaging and reusable products in general you know we talked most recently with yannick uh from zero waste europe we had a good conversation there about about packaging waste in, <clears throat> packaging waste in europe we had a an interesting conversation a little bit earlier on with uh jonathan tostevin from muse i think i guess what i would call out here is i was such a hater <laughs> i was such a hater uh when it came to reusable packaging not that long ago you know, it, it's just one of those things where I really felt like the um, the upfront costs and then the upfront sustainability issues. You know, you have to invest a lot more carbon emissions into any of these these uh, reusable products, right? Combined with my pretty dim view of like human nature, view uh, v this type of uh, <laughs> this type of activity. You know, really, I think put me in the perspective that this is not going to be something that was really meaningfully part of the solution. Um, and that combined with logistics challenges, you know, just, just made it sort of a, a waste of time, a diversion, right? And I think I, I'm a lot more sensitive to the opportunity that this could make sense now, right? Especially for food service, there are these applications where it definitely makes sense. And I think what we're seeing is that there is a lot of regulatory support, a lot more than I expected. Um, it's something that gets fairly good, you know, support across the board, even from people like Yannick. And then you see like oil and gas producing companies and countries uh, supporting it at the UN level, right? So it's like a pretty broad spectrum of support. And I think we're we're developing the business models and the approaches that help it make sense, right? And it's not going to be a a solution for everything, but there are some real opportunities there. Um, I guess I'm a little worried that it's, you know, it's got such broad support because it's fake, right? Because it's, it's, we're really underestimating <laughs> the challenges uh, associated with it. But I, I would say this is probably the, the thing that has, I've changed my mind the most on this year as well. What, what do you think's driven the, the, your, your change in mind there? Is it just because you, you, you see the economics it working out or just because you're seeing the, the, the interest in it from, you know, the from some of these retail food service players. The regulation, the economics, the failure of other good options, I think, uh, mm, yeah. or like the failure of, of, of pyrolysis and other plastic plastic recycling efforts. Um, all those things are uh, part of it for sure. I think the biggest single thing is that it. I, I am more aware of the business models and the environments where it, it actually makes a lot of sense. And that those environments and business models actually occupy a larger part of the overall landscape than I than I thought. You know, like I was really skeptical on like food service, like fast food, right? I was like, this will mm -hmm. only work for like stadiums. You know what I mean? 
it's like actually, I think your average McDonald's could potentially get away with this, right? And 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 occupy a much larger part of its overall you know, sort of packaging consumption in this way. I guess the challenge, you know, will be in America where we do everything through the drive-through, right? <laughs> Is it actually going to make sense for us? But but putting that aside, I think there's there's a lot of opportunity here. If you were to choose between uh, reusable packaging and recyclable single-use packaging. What would you choose? I think if they both worked the way they claimed, I would choose reusable packaging. Um, it just, not only is it effective in terms of its emissions, but importantly, it puts a very low burden on the waste ecosystem. And that's something mm-hmm. I'm increasingly sensitive to. Like the biggest opportunity we have to improve recycling rates is really by taking stuff out of the recycling system. You know what I mean? Like preventing mm-hmm. material from flowing into it in the first place. And making sure what material does flow into it is more thoughtfully selected, right? So yeah. to me, the reuse packaging is really something that can improve both the recycling approaches and whatever it's actually being used for, right? It makes everything better um, by making the system, the waste system, you know, less burdened by material. And that's something that, you know, even the advanced recycling technologies aren't really doing, right? They're in some ways they're burdening the the waste ecosystem more by asking for higher levels of separation so mm-hmm. that's driving a lot of my my thinking here do you see these technologies actually actually working out better from an emissions standpoint though because i mean some of the models that i've seen it's like you know we collect these and then we take them off site somewhere and we wash them and reprocess them and then we bring them back because there's a there is a lot of logistics that can be involved in that and the energy in the washing process and you know yada 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 does 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 that, um, and of course, each individual article, you know, for a reusable, you know, tray or cup or whatever contains a lot more plastic than the single use version. So just the total volume of material. And, you know, if you use it enough times, obviously that, that mitigates it. But um, does it actually, you know, consistently prove out uh, from an emission standpoint, even with all the other energy for washing and logistics and everything factored in? I think you have to get to a point where you're doing everything on site. Um, that's the biggest thing for me is that the logistics, the assumptions around the logistics and the assumptions around the loss of material, the loss of product is, is really important. Right? Those are the two things that, that kill you with reuse. So that's why I'm a lot more skeptical around it for something like reuse, like mailers for Amazon or whatever. That's a lot more challenging. That's a much more open environment. There's a huge opportunity for loss there. So I think, you know, the system we have to move towards is something that is everything is being washed um, and reused and managed on site uh, in a pretty closed loop. And you're limiting your opportunity for these things to wander away, right, um, as much as possible. Because the difference between a, like a 90% and a 95%, you know, reuse rate or like loss rate. Um, is is huge, huge. You know, mm-hmm. one of those is very worse, I think, in, in terms of carbon emissions footprint, and the other is, is a significant improvement over the current state. So you just have um, really, really significant opportunities mm-hmm. to to mess this up, right? And that's maybe yeah. I true of every technology, um, but maybe particularly true. And the biggest risk for for reuse is just that there is such an opportunity to. Uh, uh, to screw things up. Do you uh, 
And sorry, Mike, before you go on, uh, do you think hygiene is going to be a challenge among consumers with reusable packaging? Uh, like, for example, in India, I know people who are vegetarians and they wouldn't go to a res- restaurant that serves both vegetarian and non-vegetarian food, even if they have options, because they're scared that they use the same vessels and the same spatula and whatnot for just cooking. Do you see that kind of a thing with reusable packaging being a negative driver? Not, not really, in the sense that I think people are already acting that way. Like, I, I think if 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 that's your your baseline for making decisions, then you're probably already not going to those restaurants. And um, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't, then you aren't, right? Like, yeah, we use washed plates all the time, right? Like anyone who goes to a restaurant is eating off a plate that has been used by a lot of other people. So mm-hmm. like this is not really that big of a deal in that context, right? And it's really more about extending a pretty normal restaurant experience back into areas and uh you know economic situations like Panera, right? Or like uh you know your McDonald's where we've moved away from that traditional experience. So if anything, I think, you know, you'll see companies like McDonald's making the argument that this is like something premium, that this isn't a nice experience uh, that people, you know, want to have. And I think you'll see that that, that argument could definitely resonate with uh, with a lot of different mm-hmm. people. And I really want McDonald's breakfast right now. Uh, <laughs> there, 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 there's a McDonald's that's like literally right downstairs from the from the New York office. So I, I, I usually only go to McDonald's with my kids. But since we've moved here it's like, yeah, to this office, it's like, yeah, I could grab a sausage, egg and cheese on the way into the, the way into the office. I haven't had McDonald's in uh, in a year and a half, I think so. Wow. I haven't had McDonald's in a week and a half. You didn't hit up uh, McDonald's in Japan? No, I did twice. The shrimp, the shrimp, um, shrimp patties, or I do not go for the killer. shrimp patties. Uh, the the McDonald's Japan breakfast in the Tokyo station is so hot. They do such a good job there. It's like one of the, like the most high quality McDonald's uh, I think globally, and I've eaten at a lot of McDonald's globally. Um, <laughs> but let me tell you what, you know, two meals: ba- uh, sausage, egg, and cheese meal uh, plus a chicken uh mcmuffin meal with the hash browns with two lattes for drinks that's game fuel i can do an infinite number of meetings in a day <laughs> after uh consuming that particular calorie bomb let me tell you what that is seriously good i think the last thing on the on the reusable uh packaging though is you know what it's sort of the same question you asked me like what are the opportunities for this to for for the the plastics or material or, or other sorts of su- suppliers as well. Right. Cause it's something we get asked a lot, right. We, there's all these chemical companies, they produce a lot of, you know, polyethylene or PET or whatever that goes into single use packaging. It's like, well, you can make a good plastic for that's used for reusable packaging. But the, the whole, per, the whole sort of point of that model is there is not as much plastic in it. So what, what do you think about as some of the, the opportunities or business models or something that can make, yeah, I think what I would say about this is that I'm really interested in not just for reusable, but in a kind of leasing model for materials, right? Because I think we're going to increasingly have a class class of materials that are used, have relatively high performance characteristics, and then have an end-of-life 
management situation. And I think you see this in everything as diverse from reusable packaging, but also like, you know, tanks for hydrogen, right? Like you have increasingly materials where they are straddling the sort of traditional single use definition, right? With some sort of longer use lifetime, but still not that long and a meaningful amount of waste being generated. So like automobile waste, you know, these reusable plastic objects are not going to last forever, right? They're probably going to only last maybe a year in service, maybe a few years, right? Like that's just like, if you, if you use a cup, like a, you know, a plastic cup in your house might last for a couple of years, but you're not using that a hundred times a day, right? You're not putting it through four or five wash cycles in a day, right? You're using it once a week, maybe. Um, and those things still get broken pretty quickly. So like reusable plastic products will generate a meaningful amount of waste. And I think there's an opportunity for materials companies to really build a business model where they they lease the cups, right? As opposed to selling the material. Um, and they take that back. They, they provide for, for the end of life services for those cups as well, because they're, you know, those, those are going to have meaningful end of life um, management issues that are going to be distinct, very different from, um, you know, your, your single use packaging, right? Where the form factors are going to be different. The materials are going to be different. Uh, the things like the quality of the, you know, they might be colored plastic. It might be all, all these different things are going to be different. So it's going to really require a, a significant end of life ecosystem there. And again, I think the value of the whole reuse approach is that we don't burden the waste ecosystem. And, if you want to actually make good on that promise, you have to have, I think, a separate sort of takeaway end-of-life option for these. And I think a lot of materials companies can can build business models there, but it's a lot of stuff that's not as familiar for chemical companies, right? They they like selling tons of material, and this is very much a, a different approach. Yeah, I mean, even sort of supplying the logistics services around those right including end of life uh you know and the the washing systems or what you, you could imagine a company but it'd be a big a company doing that but it would be a big uh, big shift in business model and and skill set so that yeah. would be challenging but i think you'll see somebody try it at some point you know some of you know i think we'll see people try it pretty soon for yeah. sure all right fellas i think we'll leave it there we're at the top of the hour. Cricket, soon reach, and um, Mike and I. We have our we have <laughs> our own. Work to do as who's, well. who's India playing right now? Karzik? South South Africa. South Africa. All right. Mm. Go get him. Go get him. Yeah, we're all we're all. <laughs> That's what I hope. <laughs> and I guess you will be off uh, to have your sausage egg and cheese from the McDonald's I, downstairs. God, I'm so tempted. Holy cow. Uh, <laughs> you know my uh, my partner and, and kid are out of town, so it's I'm 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 really goblin mode this this next couple of days. So. <laughs> the 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 ten thirty run to McDonald's might be in my life for sure, which just kind of shows you how far I've fallen. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. I, I want to encourage you to uh, subscribe uh, on whatever app you use. Just click that button; it does help us out. So we really appreciate it and. We'll be back next week for a look forward to the next year. But uh, yeah, leave it there. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research, the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast 
on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out www.luxresearchinc.com blog for all of the latest news, opinions, and articles.